The hit HBO comedy series Veep uh, follows the political career of Selena Meyer, played by Julia Louis-Dreyfus. Meyer is a spineless, narcissistic, morally compromised politician who only stands for what might bolster her reputation. She is surrounded by a team of devoted staffers who redefine the word incompetence. Each episode follows the Meyer team as they get themselves into embarrassing political circumstances that are entirely their own doing. Now, I should warn you, the show is uh, for adults only. <laughs> and only a certain type of adult who can see past the ribaldry. It's very funny, though. It has won countless awards due to the, the writing and the acting. But it's also popular because viewers recognize truth in it. Everyone who watches Veep knows that the show is not just fiction. It's making fun of the non-fiction leaders in our capitals who sometimes look as incompetent as Selena Meyer. Now, these days, it's easy to make fun of our political leaders. Uh, they give us lots of good material. Oftentimes, Washington, D.C. looks like a sitcom. But it has not always been this way. Over the past 60 years, uh, trust in our political leaders has been on a steady slide downwards. According to one reputable long-running poll, back in 1960, 73% of Americans uh, would have said that they trusted their government leaders most or all of the time, 73%. Now that number has dwindled to 17% of Americans say they trust their leaders in the government. This is, this is pre-COVID, too. Now it's probably negative like 5% of Americans trust their government leaders. Why the distrust? Well, over the years, the media has done a good job exposing the hypocrisy in Washington. Plus, I think the people running our communities are not the best and the brightest as they once were. Politics has been exposed as such a game that anybody who wants to make a difference uh, tends to choose another profession. What are we left with? We're left with Selena Meyer. We're left with people who don't know what they're doing. And we are worse for it. Our country is more vulnerable and weaker as a result. The people of ancient Israel know our pain. There was a time in their history when the incompetence of their leaders had become almost comical. They had their own sitcom going on. And the people of Israel were suffering for it. Now, God recognized that the leadership of Israel was failing its people. The situation had become so bad that God decides to put an end to it. He cancels the sitcom. He plans a reckoning to come and one that will not be pretty. We see this in the Old Testament book of Isaiah. Uh, we just started a new series here at Rooftop. It's an in-depth study, in-depth 10-month study of Isaiah in the series called Isaiah for Today. Now, Isaiah, if you don't know, was a Jewish prophet who lived in the 8th century before Christ. Now, the people of God, Israel, had abandoned their calling to be a light to the nations, a blessing to the world. God had warned and endured with them for centuries, but they had failed to repent of their sins. So God finds them a, sends them a final prophet to call them to account. His name is Isaiah, and he lived in the nation of Judah, which is God's people to the south. Now, Isaiah is a big, complicated, massive book, so we're breaking it up into different themes or different sub-series. And during our first sub-series that I'm calling National Disaster, we've been looking at Judah's sins. Uh, Judah committed a lot of sins against God for which they were judged, immorality, idolatry. And this morning, we're going to look at another sin, 
following corrupt leaders. So there's two passages that I want to read to you this morning. The first one comes from Isaiah chapter 28, and the other comes from Isaiah 56. Uh, these are actually both very long passages, something we're going to ha have to get used to in reading and studying Isaiah, reading long sections of Scripture. But it's not like that's a terrible thing, <laughs> reading long sections of Scripture together. I believe in you. So first, let me share with you a big passage from Isaiah 28. Woe to that reef, the pride of Ephraim's drunkards, to the fading flower, his glorious beauty, set on the head of a fertile valley, to that city, the pride of the, those laid low by wine. See, the Lord has one who is powerful and strong, like a hailstorm and a destructive wind, like a driving rain and a flooding downpour. He will throw it forcefully to the ground. That wreath, the pride of Ephraim's drunkards, will be trampled underfoot. That fading flower, his glorious beauty, set on the head of a fertile valley, will be like figs ripe before harvest. As soon as people see them and take them in hand, they swallow them. In that day, the Lord Almighty will be a glorious crown, a beautiful wreath for the remnant of his people. He will be a spirit of justice to the one who sits in judgment, a source of strength to those who turn back the battle at the gate. And these also stagger from wine and reel from beer. Priests and prophets stagger from beer and are befuddled with wine. They reel from beer. They stagger when seeing visions. They stumble when rendering decisions. All the tables are covered with vomit. And there is not a spot without filth. Therefore, hear the word of the Lord, you scoffers who rule this people in Jerusalem. You boast, we have entered into a covenant with death. With the realm of the dead, we have made an agreement. When an overwhelming scourge sweeps by, it cannot touch us, for we have made a lie our refuge and falsehood our hiding place. So this is what the sovereign Lord says. See, I lay a stone in Zion, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone for a sure foundation. The one who relies on it will never be stricken with panic. I will make justice the measuring line and righteousness the plumb line. Hail will sweep away your refuge, the lie, and water will overflow your hiding place. Your covenant with death will be annulled. Your agreement with the realm of the dead will not stand. When the overwhelming scourge sweeps by, you will be beaten down by it. As often as it comes, it will carry you away. Morning after morning, by day and by night, it will sweep through. Now let me read to you one final passage. This is shorter, from Isaiah 56. Come, all you beasts of the field. Come and devour all you beasts of the forest. Israel's watchmen are blind. They all lack knowledge. They're all mute dogs. They cannot bark. They lie around and dream. They love to sleep. They're dogs with mighty appetites. They never have enough. They're shepherds who lack understanding. They all turn to their own way. They seek their own gain. Come, each one cries. Let me get wine. Let us drink our fill of beer, and tomorrow will be like today, or even far better. <clears throat> now, now, these are two complicated passages. If you're scratching your head and you have no idea what we just did, and you don't understand what we just read, 
that's okay. There's a lot going on here. As we are going to find out, the poetry of Isaiah can be very difficult to follow. I mean, it's ancient Hebrew poetry. Not a lot of us have experience with that. <clears throat> and it's also difficult to understand because of the imagery and some of the historical references, which we might not get. Now, we can't go over everything from these two passages here, but generally, generally, here's what's happening. The prophet Isaiah is pronouncing judgment on the leaders of the two nations of God's people. Remember that God's people of Israel had split into two. Uh, Israel to the north and Judah to the south. This was called the divided kingdom. Now, sometimes Israel to the north was also called uh, Ephraim because Ephraim was one of the tribes of Israel that had kind of settled in the north. And the capital of Israel to the north of Ephraim was this city, Samaria. Judah to the south was God's people to the south. Uh, it was called Judah because Judah was one of the tribes of Israel that settled in the south, and their capital, the capital of Judah, is the city of Jerusalem. Now, the prophet Isaiah actually lived in the region of Judah to the south, but he speaks to both groups of people, speaks to both nations. Now, in this passage, he starts with some very harsh words for the northern kingdom of Israel, or Ephraim. He says, woe to that wreath. The pride of Ephraim's drunkards to the fading flower, his glorious beauty set on the head of a fertile valley to that city, the pride of those laid low by wine. That city is the city of Samaria, the capital of Ephraim. Samaria was the pride of those in the northern kingdom. It was a glorious city, the, the, the wreath, the crown on their heads. But according to Isaiah, it is a city ruled by drunkards. It is a city laid low by wine. The prophet is even sharper in his criticism of these drunken leaders in verse 7. He writes that priests and prophets stagger from beer and are befuddled with wine. They reel from beer. They stagger when seeing visions. They stumble when rendering decisions. Again, these are the rulers of Ephraim, the, the, the leaders of Israel. They are the prophets, the priests, the, the leaders who are just too drunk to make decisions. They're too incapacitated to see visions and lead God's people. Now, in the second passage, Isaiah criticizes Israel's leaders, not because they are drunken fools. He criticizes them because they are lazy and ignorant. He writes, Israel's watchmen are blind. They all lack knowledge. They lie around and dream. They love to sleep. They are shepherds who lack understanding. They all turn their own way. They seek their own gain. The prophet calls these leaders watchmen and shepherds. Maybe you know what a watchman is. Someone who stands on the wall of a city, watching for threats. Maybe you know what a shepherd is. Someone who cares for the people inside the city. Israel's leaders were called to be both watchmen and shepherds, but they were doing neither. They are blind to threats and too lazy to care for the people. Like Selena Meyer, they have no idea what they're doing. They're just fools. So this was the situation in Isaiah's day. Both Judah to the south and Israel, Ephraim to the north, were ruled by leaders who were failing at their job. Uh, behind Israel's, or Isaiah's poetry is a laundry list of accusations. These leaders are drunk on their own power, actually drunk on wine. They use their position to live comfortably. They are proud and arrogant. They are lazy. They lack understanding. And they are naively optimistic. In verse 12, these leaders say, tomorrow will be like today, even far better. They think they can just keep lying around and enjoying their perch forever. Honestly, they sound like so many overly optimistic politicians today who promise us of better days to come. 
Tomorrow will be better, they say. Our best days are ahead of us, they say. It's morning in America, they say. Politicians have been naively optimistic for as long as we've had them. But God says no. God says that tomorrow will not be like today, let alone better. Therefore, hear the word of the Lord, you scoffers who rule this people in Jerusalem, he says. Isaiah says that these leaders, these nations, are about to be judged. They were appointed to be shepherds, watchmen. Instead, they got drunk on power and wine. As a result of their dereliction, their nations are left weak and vulnerable. And even now, foreign nations are approaching Israel to destroy it, and the leaders aren't even the wiser. Israel is about to be besieged by Assyria. Judah is about to be besieged by Babylon. And Isaiah sees these military threats as the imminent judgment, long-coming judgment of God. As he says in verse 2, The Lord has one who is powerful and strong, like a hailstorm and a destructive wind, like a driving rain and a flooding downpour. He will throw it forcefully to the ground. The Lord has an enemy in his pocket to destroy his people. The crown of Ephraim, the capital of Samaria, the wreath, will be thrown forcefully to the ground. Why? Because its shepherds and watchmen have failed to protect it. They have gotten drunk on their own power, and they have neglected the people. So that's what's going on in the passages. Now, let's talk some application. So what for us? Well, this is not a scene with which we are unfamiliar our leaders also fail us. They get drunk on their own power. They lack understanding. They use their position to feed their appetites. Now, of course, I'm talking about many of our government and civic leaders, no surprise there, but I'm more so talking about our spiritual leaders, our religious leaders. Those are the leaders that God has put in place to lead his people. Our political leaders exercise power over us under the authority of God, yes, but they were not appointed by God to lead his sacred people. God's chosen people is not America. Let me say that again, because this is pretty important. God's chosen people is not America. America is not God's nation. God's leaders are not Biden, Trump, Pelosi, or McConnell. God's people his Judah, his Israel, is us. It's the church. It's the followers of Jesus around the world. And his leaders, his shepherds, his watchmen are pastors, elders, priests, deacons. Those are the ones God called to lead his nation, the church, as the kings and the prophets led Israel. Just like the kings and the prophets failed Israel, though, so our religious leaders fail us. How do they fail us? Well, as a Christian leader, I hang out with Christian leaders all the time. I know them, I follow them, I read their books. As a Christian leader, I know my own sins and failures, and I know the sins and failures of those like me. Now, we're not all evil. We do good work. But we are not always an impressive bunch I know firsthand that church leaders can be lazy, self-interested, arrogant, ignorant, given to vice, and drunk on their own power. It happens all the time. You know the phenomena, for example, of the celebrity pastor. 
Certain Christian leaders become something of a celebrity when their church or their ministry gets noteworthy. They slowly become blind to their own weaknesses. Like the proverbial frog in a kettle, they become something they never, ever intended to become without them even realizing it. Oftentimes, tragedy results. We've seen pastors fall quite tragically here in St. Louis, even recently. More pastors will fall still. Generally speaking, the people who lead our churches in this country are not highly regarded. A recent Pew poll, for example, asked Americans to rank certain groups of leaders by their trustworthiness according to certain performance attributes. Let me show you some of the results. Uh, For example, Americans were asked to rank certain types of leaders by how much they cared for others. Religious leaders ranked third behind school principals and police officers. 70% of Americans said religious leaders care uh, about people, although we are at least ahead of Congress and leaders of technology companies. (laughs) That's good. (laughs) When it comes to handling resources responsibly, religious leaders ranked fourth, again behind school principals, military leaders, and the police. When it comes to providing fair and accurate information to the public, religious leaders ranked sixth behind journalists and just ahead of Congress. And when it comes to taking responsibility for our mistakes, religious leaders ranked fourth with only 50% of Americans saying we admit our mistakes. Congress ranked dead last with only 19% of Americans saying Congress takes responsibility for their mistake. I think that's very generous. (laughs) Now, I don't want to overstate these numbers. Public opinion doesn't always mean that much. Also, these numbers are probably skewed by highly visible religious leaders with terrible reputations who ruin things for the rest of us. And the numbers aren't all that bad. At least, you know, we outrank Congress consistently. But if there's a trend in these numbers, it's that in terms of moral trustworthiness, God's leaders are basically in the middle of the pack. My question is, why aren't we at the top of the heap? I mean, anything other than that is spiritual failure on our own part. I mean, God's leaders are called to nothing less than holiness and faithfulness. We follow the greatest leader of all time who set the standard for moral perfection. We serve God by the supernatural power of the Holy Spirit leading us into into godliness. Why are we outranked by school principals? Nothing against school principals. That's actually a question. Why are religious leaders today so average? Average at best, and uh, corruptible at worst. Well, I think this is the case for lots of reasons. First, God's leaders are sinners, just like everybody is. Sometimes God's leaders are pretty big sinners. Sometimes this is actually by design. The Bible actually says that God prefers really big sinners because it allows him to show his grace and power. Uh, Paul, in the New Testament, even boasts that he is the worst of sinners, but this is to God's glory. Also, the challenges of leadership are hard. Leadership can bring out the best and the worst in people. Trust me. Another reason God's leaders fail is because uh, Satan goes after us. 
The devil tries to ruin the lives of pastors and elders and priests. Uh, you've heard it said that, that every Christian leader walks around with a target on her back. It's true. The devil knows what sort of mayhem can result when pastors fail. An old friend of mine is an atheist today for many reasons, but maybe the thing that cinched the deal for him was when his youth pastor was exposed as a fraud. God's leaders are corruptible for lots of reasons, but one of the biggest reasons that I think God's leaders fail us is a reason that we don't really want to countenance. One of the biggest reasons our leaders fail us is because we fail them. Let me say that again. This is my big point today. One of the biggest reasons our leaders fail us is because we fail them. It's true that God appoints men and women to lead his people. The Bible makes that clear. But leadership is a difficult gig and requires cooperative and supportive people. And in this regard, many of us are failing our leaders. We criticize when we should cooperate. We ignore when we should engage. We excuse when we should examine. We do or we don't do these things. Then... <laughs> At least they're listening. Yes, now they are. Yeah, I don't actually know that you were listening. Maybe you're just imitating weird sounds. <laughs> we criticize these leaders. Then, <laughs> then we have the nerve to get disappointed in them. I've always found it interesting and hypocritical that American politicians are by far the statistically lowest ranked group of leaders in our country. As we saw, everybody hates Congress. but we're the ones that put them there consistently. It's easier to blame them than it is to take responsibility for our political choices. I mean, what is America? America is a government of and by the people. That at least was the idea. We blame our leaders, but are they the problem? Let's be honest. We're the problem. Same thing here. God's leaders fail us because we fail them. In order to lead well, God's leaders need God's people. What do they need? They need many things. God's leaders need prayer. Prayer for strength and wisdom. Not, not just a little bit of prayer, but lots of prayer and fasting and pounding on the doors of heaven, demanding that God bless his leaders with supernatural strength. How diligently do you pray for your elders, for your pastors, for your small group leader? Also, God's leaders need support. God does not appoint his leaders to do the work of the people. God appoints his leaders to help the people do the work of the kingdom. When people let leaders do all the work, it drives leaders crazy. Sometimes it actually drives them crazy. Some of you are working hard to do the work of the kingdom. What about the rest of you? Also, God's leaders need accountability. Sometimes we fall in love with our leaders too much. We lose our objectivity and let our leaders become the worst versions of themselves without saying anything. It's easy to say, oh, you know, that's just Matt being Matt. We love him so much, we don't want to hurt his feelings. That's just Matt being Matt. Or, speaking of politicians, that's just Trump being Trump. Or, that's just Biden being Biden. But we fail our leaders by not holding them accountable for their sin. 
And lastly, God's leaders need grace. Leaders make mistakes. I make mistakes. Like you, I make mistakes. Leaders need to be reminded that there is forgiveness for even the most consequential mistake. I know that a lot of leaders have made a lot of mistakes this past year. It's been an interesting year. Politicians, school, health officials, religious leaders have had to make some tough calls. They've made some mistakes, even some deadly ones. They won't always admit it, even though they should. But I think, if anything, the situation has exposed a lack of graciousness in our country among the people. We're just an angry people. We're just impatient. Uh, we're just ridiculous and immature. Yes, we need good leaders to lead us well, but we also have to grow up and chill out. God's leaders need prayer and support and accountability and grace from God's people. We don't always give it to them. As a result, our leaders fail us. Our leaders fail us because we fail them. Now, the reason we fail them is because we are fail yours. We are moral and spiritual failures who fall short of God's calling on our lives. And here's the rub. We will be judged for it. We will be washed away. Isaiah writes that we will be washed away by a scourge, by a flood, because of our failures, because of our drunkenness and our dereliction, we will be destroyed. Like Israel was destroyed by Assyria, like Judah was destroyed by Babylon, we will be destroyed because of our own failures. It happened to them, it will happen to us. We'll be judged. Unless we are anchored to the rock. I haven't spoken yet on the final section of Isaiah 28, which I read to you and which you might have recognized, but I'll leave you with this this morning. After Isaiah prophesies the arrival of this, this scourge, this, this storm, this punishment uh, on the, the, the leaders and the people of these cities, he takes a turn. In chapter 28, verse 16, he writes this. So this is what the sovereign Lord says. See, I lay a stone in Zion, a tested stone, a precious stone, cornerstone for a sure foundation. The one who relies on it will never be stricken with panic. Hail will sweep away your refuge, the lie, and water will overflow your hiding place. When the overwhelming scourge sweeps by, you will be beaten down by it. As often as it comes, it will carry you away. Morning after morning, by day and by night, it will sweep through. Isaiah is describing a storm here, a storm of violence that will sweep through Israel and Judah. It's their punishment. He will pound the leaders. Water will carry them off in the form of their enemies. But, he says, they do have hope. Isaiah writes that a stone will be laid in Zion. Zion is the city of Jerusalem. A tested stone, a cornerstone, which is a sure foundation. The stone will stand in the middle of the storm. The waters of the flood will rage around it. All who rest on the stone will be safe from the scourge, from the rain. All who stand on the rock, he says, need not panic because they will not die. The authors of the New Testament quote this verse from Isaiah. The apostle Peter sees in this stone the ministry of Christ. He calls Jesus, based on this verse, the living stone. Jesus is the living stone upon whom we rest to escape the scourge of sin because we too face the judgment of God. We will all be judged for our failures, for our crimes, for our averageness. God appointed us to be a sacred chosen people. Are we, and we are anything but. As a result, we will be judged 
will be judged as fit for nothing other than hell. But God loves us too much to leave it like that. Justice demands that we be judged, but mercy required that a way be made. So God made a way. He gave us a cornerstone in the storm, a firm foundation in the scourge. When Jesus came to earth to live and die for our sins and be raised from the dead, he became that living stone. And by having faith in him as the stone, we survive the storm. No matter how much we've failed God, no matter how much we've failed the people, no matter how much we have failed our leaders, we can be forgiven. We can be forgiven if we stand on the rock, if we stand on the stone by our faith in Jesus Christ. This is what we celebrate when we take communion. We celebrate being rescued from death and judgment by the rock of Christ. We take communion on the third week of every month here at Rooftop. In our understanding, communion is a symbolic reenactment of who we are as God's people. We are as family gathered around the dinner table to remember how we are who we are. We are his adopted children because of the death of his beloved son, Jesus, on the cross. When we drink from the cup, we're reminded of his blood, which was shed for us. When we eat that little wafer, we're reminded of his body, which was broken for us. It's by our faith in Jesus and what Jesus did on the cross that we can be saved from death and from judgment as we stand righteous and holy upon the rock. Here at Rooftop, we practice open communion, which means that anybody can participate regardless of church home, or denomination, anybody who identifies themselves as a follower of Jesus by their belief and faith in Jesus as the unique Son of God and has demonstrated that faith through repentance of sin and baptism in water can join us. If you would, go ahead and take out your self-serve communion cup and peel off that top layer. This is the body of Christ, broken on the cross for you. Pull back the next layer. This is the blood of Christ, poured out for you, for your sins, and the sins of many. Father, sometimes I don't always feel like an absolute terrible sinner, the worst of sinners. I make mistakes, say things that I shouldn't have said, think things I shouldn't have thought. But do I have to go to hell because of it? But you know things that I don't know about me and about your holiness about your calling on my life. If I just made a few mistakes with my life, your son would not have had to come to earth to die on the cross for our sins. But the fact that such a pure and holy sacrifice had to be made so violently means that I'm missing something about my sin, about our sin. That it's a problem that I can't do anything about. But you did. You did something about it. You came to earth as a man, 
and made the payment. These days, we're seeing a lot of sin. We're seeing a lot of sin everywhere we look. But it's not our leader's fault that our country is in such a shambles. It's not our leader's fault that our lives are such a mess. It's ours. We're sinners. We're part of the human race. We're all in this together. And we're all going down by the scourge, by the storm, by the Assyrians, by the Babylonians. We're all going down. Because we deserve to. Not because you're mean, but because we deserve to. We deserve to be judged. But you made a way. You lowered from heaven a stone into the flood. And it is by our faith in Jesus Christ who died for our sins that we stand upon the rock. That we rest upon the cornerstone. Thank you for that sacrifice. Thank you for reminding us of what it cost. That's how much you love us, though, that you would do that. Help us live lives of humility as we uh, glorify you and praise you for your love and for your sacrifice. We do pray for our leaders right now. All the men and the women who work so tirelessly or not to lead us. Help us know how we can support them. how we can hold them accountable, how we can pray for them. And we forgive them for their sins as you have forgiven us for ours. And we close this morning, Father, by praying together the words of the Lord's Prayer. A prayer which your son Jesus taught his disciples to pray, and disciples have been praying for generations since words that will appear on the screen for those who need them. Our Father, who is in heaven, Holy is your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. On earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever.